Welcome to Words First, talking text in opera. Hugo von Hofmannsthal, early 20th century Viennese poet and dramatist, is often cited when I ask people who their favorite librettist is. Even though his list of libretti, written only for Richard Strauss, is not long. The librettist of Der Rosenkavalier, Elektra, and Die Frau ohne Schatten certainly wrote some lasting pieces before his untimely death in 1929. But how is it that this man did not write one word within the commonly produced rep in the United States, and yet he is still held up as the greatest? I went to Brian Gilliam, musicologist, author, and retired professor at Duke University to find out, and picked up his excellent book, Rounding Wagner's Mountain, Richard Strauss and Modern German Opera, to get my talking points in order. Before I get to Brian, however, I want to talk about another Strauss-Hoffmannsthal collaboration, Ariadne of Naxos. Considered an experiment by Strauss and Hoffmannsthal, this complicated piece started off as a short one-off, but after revisions became one of the duo's most beloved works. I found it fitting, then, that two artists I spoke to in December brought the ending of Ariadne as the piece of text they wanted to discuss— and so here are excerpts from their interviews. First is director Thaddeus Strasberger, who begins with some of Ariadne's last lines and ties Ariadne's plight to all of us in isolation these last months. What now remains in your embrace? What part of me as I'm dying flies to you in secret upon your sighing breath? What remains of Ariadne? What still remains of Ariadne? Please, do not let my sorrow be forgotten. Let not my sorrow be forgotten now. Your love, your love gives Ariadne life. So, yeah. it's super strange, isn't it? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't translate well to, to English. And even in the German, it's very strangely written. Yeah. It's, very, it, it's poetry in the, the sort of highest literary sense. Yeah, absolutely. Now, talk to me about what it means to you. Well, Ariadne of Naxos is a really interesting opera that I think encapsulates a lot of what I like best about music theater, um, i.e. words, images, and sound mixing together. Obviously, Richard Strauss and a lot of his work deals with, um, like in Capriccio, what comes first, the, the words or the music, and a lot of his operas are very text forward mm -hmm. and yet they have some of the most profound music ever written so it's yes. like actually they're both kind of dialed up to you know 20 yep. um and they you don't feel like there's a competition that, that one wins out over the other but that they each sort of double each other's power ariadne is an even more special opera in a sense to sort of in the operatic literature that it's not like a zingspiel where there's a, like text interspersed uh, spoken text interspersed with music say like in a magic flute or more sort of what we think of as a modern musical where there's like book moments and then sung moments. Um, but it actually has uh, originally an entire prologue that was written in prose. So it was like a play. Mm -hmm. And then the second act was an, an opera. And then the way ultimately it ended up becoming revised in the version that we are familiar with now is um, mixed together, but sort of always with this idea of two in a way, opposing forces of text, which is sort of a rational explanation of, of things, and it's very concrete, and music, which is a very sort of formless thing um, coming together. He also, one of the, the, I mean, the major theme in the opera is how, um, given the demands of life, business, and money, essentially, in the opera, how are we able to play out the comedy and the tragedy in our lives simultaneously. Yes. It's insane. And to really sort of relish the, the limitations of sort of text, the limitations mm. of Zoom, the limitations mm -hmm. of, of theater, the limitations of socialization. I mean, the, the words in German that she says, Lass meinen Schmerzen nicht verloren sein. When you switch it into German, the emphasis goes in a different place, mm -hmm. I think. Let not my pain 
forgotten be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think by putting the, the pain and the forgotten together is is really, really powerful there as well. It's been a long time since I've worked on the piece. And so I was going back, like paying attention to sort of the whole thing. And there's just so many moments that I think can really dig deep. What, what was your what was your impetus for choosing this particular passage? I don't know. I agree with you. There's lots of things that could be um, excerpted from this and talked about at length. It's one of the few operas. It's so compact. Um, the opera is very short, the, especially the the second half, which is like the real opera, opera part of it, right. um, is so short that it never, it feels always to me a bit like real life, that you never get a chance to fully develop or experience that amazing thing that just happened. It seems to vanish before you're tired of it, before you're bored of it. You know, opera, people often think it's sort of long and extended and, you know, big emotions, you know, bel canto that sort of goes on about one specific idea for a while. This feels like the opposite. It feels like the the creators of the opera understood how complex and sort of impermeable, impenetrable life's complications are mm. and that you can experience them very deeply and then somehow like the the winds of time just like push you on to the next experience. Like as soon as you experience the true sort of comedy moment, the tragedy just like the the, the floor drops out beneath you. Mm-hmm. And so to to excerpt any one of those moments is a bit difficult because it's really about the contrast between one place and the other place. In the end, it is a kind of like denouement sort of like thesis statement mm-hmm. that wraps up a lot about what happened and it it allow it, it sort of encapsulates everything that i would love to talk to about the whole opera so i think right now in, in corona time we've we spent so much time dealing with like everyday things about like how to go grocery shopping or like can, <laughs> can i take a bus like you know you know do i have my mask with me before i have to interact sure. with the situation you know is it appropriate to like uh, make a, a social overture to this person in this situation? Is it appropriate to, you know, so we're just sort of navigating all of these things. And I feel like a lot of what Ariadne goes through in the opera is similar. She's isolated. She's literally been left by her love yes. on an island yes. to wait. And we've been left by our love of, of theater, of, of interaction, of humanity, of poetry. We've been left on our island to sit and wait. And basically everything that you read, you know, the podcast or talking to friends or on the news, it's all well, just wait. You know, this vaccine is coming. This is coming. You know, the new law is coming. The, the And it's like we're just waiting for our love to come back. The yeah. thing that like fills us with life. Yeah. And and at the end, um that what she says that I find that it's just this like sort of opens these floodgates of like an emotion is when she says Las Manishmets and Nishpe Lorenzan, do not, please, begging, don't let my pain be forgotten. Yeah. And I think that there's something about recognizing that the pain that you went through and that it's not just about moving past it, but it's about learning from it. It's about knowing yourself. I think you know, when you've lost something really intense um, in the business, it's so complicated and there's so much that you can complain about, about personalities and, uh, you know, finances and politics and, you know, there's so much that goes into it. But like, I don't think about all the things that bother me about the industry right now. I think about the things that I miss and that I love. And at the same time, I kind of want to learn. So this pain that you've gone through when you go back to something that it becomes a part of you moving forward and that a huge loss isn't something that is gone but a loss say this black hole or something that's in your heart from a major loss becomes incorporated into the complexity of of what you are as a as an artist and as a as a person as a lover as a spouse as a as a a family member. Mm-hmm. I think it's the very essence of grief, isn't it? You know, I find uh, having gone through a, 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 a sequence of deep grief that that you, uh, on the one hand, you want to get past it. You want to get to a point where you're not thinking about it every second of every day. And on the other hand, grieving means you loved something. Yeah, because there's a lot of, um, I would say, sort of operatic or literary treatments of these things of like, take this pain away from me. And I think that's part of like, sort of the Judeo-Christian sort of idea of like, I've given up this, I've given up this burden, and I've released it to the world. And now I can be happy again, because I was able to send this outside of myself. And I think this is a much more sophisticated idea, even if you think Mm -hmm. sort of in 
you know, sort of compositional history. It came after all of the stuff that we think of as opera opera. It's, a, you know, it's a very much a 20th century piece. And it's about sort of recognizing like pain and trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing that I think is really interesting that in a way, Ariadne doesn't sort of consider herself incomplete without, um, without Bacchus, Tezuas, her, her, yeah. her yeah. lover who left her. Yeah. Yet she recognizes that she can be more through his love. And I sort of grapple with that sometimes. Is this sort of like an anti-feminist thing? Is like, well, can you know, she not just be on her island and be a complete, you know, sort of <laughs> complete uh, protein carbohydrate <laughs> combo um, there without sort of needing the sort of masculine love? But I think what she's really talking about isn't. Uh, I think it sort of moves beyond the sort of the the male female yin and yang sort of thing, and it's. Um, it's much more about how much more we can be when we are filled with love mm. and that that love um, doubles everything that we have e- even more for both. And that it's not sort of a, a zero sum game of like, well, let me give up half of myself, you know, to you and you give up half of yourself to me. And we're like sort of two halves that are now whole, mm-hmm. but it's like, we're two holes that are now um, be- literally, I mean, the, 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 in the opera, they, they, they explode and become a constellation Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they become the entire universe right. and, you know, the universe is ever expanding. You know what I mean? It's not a limited, uh, a limited quantity of, of emotion or love or, or potential for, for emotional content. Next is tenor Jonathan Burton, who starts off talking about the same scene, but from his history of playing Bacchus. A cerebral performer, Jonathan speaks of Ariadne from an ontological point of view and parallels the nature of being a performer in a role with the piece itself. When I began this, I got this this role for the first time and I started to look at it. It was part of a production that was, let's say, delightfully vague. Okay? So so these questions came up a lot. These mm-hmm. things that I talk about, about in my background, about how, you know, oftentimes I think I exhaust directors. Uh, and I, in this case, I'm sure I exhausted the director with my many, many questions. You know, because you know, uh, method acting. We talk about these kinds of things a lot where you got to be the character and different people have different ways of going at it. But, but to me, you know, like a lot of vocal things, that way of looking at it has never really resonated with me. Um, in, in that, you know, my character isn't real, right? My character's fictional. Even, even within what we're doing, my character's fictional and also even within everything. So, to a certain degree, kind of like what we're talking about now, text and opera, what I really am is a, a figment of a, a figment of the author's imagination. Right. So I'm as much the author as I am my character. So that's sort of how I try to get in the headspace of it for myself. So so here we are. You want you wanted me to talk about text and opera. So the first thing I start to do is go through the roles I do the most often. And I don't mean anything bad about my beloved home repertory, but how different is Bohem from Tosca, from Butterfly in these ways? You know, for me, I feel like I'm there. Uh, The characters are all certainly very distinct, but it's for me, I don't know how I would pick one over the other, I suppose Uh is what I mean. I don't, I don't mean that's of low quality and I just mean, wow, I, they're all what the author is saying at the time through, through this character, you know, sort of, I feel like I'm part of this whole story being told. And I don't often stop to think of it in that way. It almost feels fourth wall breaking to me Mm -hmm. to think of it in that way, to turn back and look at myself and what I'm saying, what my character is saying. So it's sort of like, I don't know. I just, I said what I said, (laughs) you know, um, so my first inclinations when you ask this about my favorite moments in opera text, it's always other characters. So I'm thinking right. more we about talked what a little about yeah. this. Yeah, totally. So there are a lot of those, there are a lot of really wonderful moments in those, in those things. And I started to think about what it's like in my personality and how it needs to be set aside in these ways I've talked about to be someone like, like Cavaradossi, you and I have done Tosca at least once together. Mm-hmm. It's not that I don't understand him. It's not that I don't resonate with him. But but to me, to a certain degree, me, this 
idealist, this the heady, right-brainy philosophy type. So when I take someone like Kavradosi, and and again, I don't I don't mean to be reductive, but we have someone who's probably a pragmatist mm-hmm. who throws his life away trying to live up to an ideal. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this this kind of thing happens over and over again. And at Rodolfo, um, you know, it's it's like these characters say, Well, I'm in love. Now what? You know, mm-hmm. uh, does it mean this? Do I do that? You know, Rodolfo, so I'm in love. Well, I've, I've met this girl, we're in love, and that's the way it is. So now, does love mean bringing her into my house to try to take care of her because she's sick? Or does it mean being mean to her and driving her away because she's sick and my awful apartment's killing her? The, you know, and they all end in death. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I, again, I don't mean that in any kind of way to make fun of, of our genre, but it's, but to me, that kind of thinking, what sort of, it does lead that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when I get to this story and you, we had this production and just for those listening who may not have experienced Ariadne or, or been part of a different production, which it it can go a couple of different ways. But basically, it's a group of players who are invited to a place to put on a show. There's kind of the the comedy show, and there's the opera show. That's and then they're going to have to mix it, mm-hmm. and the composer's losing his mind over okay, how's this going to work out? And then you've got the performers who are chiming in about how hideous and awful and ridiculous this all is, and <laughs> what are we doing? What is this? Right now. Already, I'm going, oh, okay, neat. So, this is a show all of a sudden about ontology. Mm-hmm. This, you know, this is, <laughs> this is a show about the meaning of being. Yeah. And, and what is something's real essence, right? So, this goes back to my theology nerd stuff, right? So, and I'm listening to, to the composer's words, and, and I'm just sort of... I'm, I'm blown away by the brilliance of it all. And, and especially being a part of it to me, there's such a massive difference. For instance, I hated Pagliacci until I did it. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and so until I did Ariadne, until I was there trying to put myself in the position of being a piece of this story being told did I have these kinds of, pers- of perspectives, you know, I think it was midsummer night's dream. They did a movie adaptation where Kevin Klein was in it playing bottom and ended up actually asking to play various roles, <laughs> you know, and it was sort of like, Oh, how perfect. Like it just happened sort of organically yeah. like that. Right. So this is sort of the same experience that I had in this thing. I found myself when, if I do something like Pagliacci, I can slip into Canio very well and very easily. Don Jose, similarly, very well and very easy. Not because I have stabbed my cheating wife before, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> but just because you get it, mm-hmm. it to you know on a very kind of surface level, you you can try to get it, even though it's not something you would do. This is our job, right? You put right. yourself into these other places. When I was going through Ariadne, I didn't have to do that. I, over and over again, I was going, "Wait, yeah, wait, right, okay." Okay. Uh, and and by this I mean all of my questions that I w- was exhausting this poor director with were never answered. Mm. She I'm not sure if she tried. It's really funny. I would like to wait two or three more years and go have coffee with her and and talk these things over because I don't I to this day don't know if I was being handled to to get a result because it worked. You know, or if it just worked out so perfectly because it is what it is. And this is why, like, I, ha- I had to choose it today. So the question I had was, we've got a play within a play within a play mm-hmm. within my life, within the stage, within the world, within the universe. Right. So they're all up there talking about what is the nature of, of music? What is the nature of performance? What is the nature of comedy? What, what is art? What am I doing here? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and she's talking in the future tense about this work, um, about I have 
I have Ariadne, I ha- and and she is a person who was like this, and she has these kinds of ideals, and then we have Bajos, and he's like this, and this is what happens, and it's all the super, super heady stuff. So I start to ask, okay, so I come out in Act One, I'm playing quote the tenor. Mm-hmm. That's literally my character's name, mm-hmm. the tenor. Okay, easily enough. So I'm imagining myself basically at a patron party that I've been to hundreds of times. I'm the tenor. I'm walking around. I'm eating a donut, literally. Nice. And, and, okay. So it was supposed to be a chicken wing, but I begged for it to be a donut. Um, <laughs> That's a hard choice, though, I, I gotta say. I fancy myself a philosopher. I'm also Homer Simpson. Um, <laughs> it's the same. He's, yeah, you know. Yeah, right. So I would say, now, at some point, they're going to see me getting into my Bacchus costume on stage, mm-hmm. preparing to do this opera on the stage, which is on the stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of like Pagliacci in that way, at the end of, you know, the second act of Pagliacci, we're on a stage, on a stage, doing a show for an audience, which is on a stage. So I say, now what's happening? In, when I go out and in the end, and I'm doing the composer's opera, Am I Bacchus? Like I would be Rodolfo if we were doing Bohem. So here in Austin, we're putting on Ariadne of Naxos. In Act 2, who is John Burton portraying? Is he portraying the tenor who is putting on, you know, kind of like Tonio? Or, or, or I'm sorry, like uh, like Neda is trying to be, or or like Beppe is trying to do. Come on, we're put on the show for right? right. Or am I actually supposed to? Am I, you know, am I Bacchus or am I the tenor? So, wow, that's interesting. That's in- I'm like, wait, how's it interesting? Which is it? Well, see, it's not that simple. Okay, because we've got the guy who's doing the thing. He was there in Act One. He's the same guy. So it's not that. It's not that Act One show is over, and we're mm-hmm. now doing Act Two, which is a new show. Mm-hmm. It's still that tenor. Okay, so I'm Port John is playing the tenor who's playing Bacchus. Well, maybe no, not exactly. No, I mean you're Bacchus. I, I am okay. So wait, I'm okay. So John's playing a god in Act Two. Well, in so far that. The dinner, you know, or that you normally would, right? Okay, so as the harder and harder I'm striving for these answers, and I'm convincing myself that the answers to these questions are completely the hook which hangs success of my performing this role. I'm not getting my answers, and I'm having to go through with it anyway. Singing Bachus, right? It's like I almost don't even have time to think about the fact that I'm all of a sudden having to sing this role, which I'd been told at some point was the hardest thing I could endeavor to sing, which isn't far from the truth, it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just going through it. I'm doing the thing. And I'm realizing that all of these questions that I have been having, that John Burton has been having while trying to perform this show, are the same questions that the characters are asking. You know, and I'm starting to sort of have this metaphysical meta crisis, <laughs> but in a great way, right? Like, like yeah. So I go back to this to this whole. There are no two books twice. There are no two shows twice. We're sitting here creating this in the moment. Each night that we do this show, we have a different audience who's having this experience anew each time. So you know, like the. The very first words of the Hebrew Bible, Bereshit um, bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. That's so. Back to ontology. That's a thing which, that's a that's an okay way of understanding the difference between a frog and me, and me and God. I, a God, can create. I can't. Ah, but here I am, creating. <laughs> this world in this moment mm-hmm. at this time with these people here we are creating this thing which can only exist because we are all here together creating and experiencing it together for the first time and yeah that's a different thing that happened at the met in 80 
four or whatever with you know james king when he was doing it he had his own thing there and that's his own universe they created and it all of a sudden sort of satisfied me with this really deep meaning of what we're doing and that's the exact text that Bahu starts saying yeah i'm a god oh my gosh he comes to this realization because of this compound yeah so all of a sudden i'm realizing at the same time my character is realizing it's all a compound i'm part of a bigger thing this this creation this deep meaning this this joy that i'm feeling comes springing out of me i don't have an answer for why it's happening I don't understand it. And I'm asking all these questions. And when Ariadne and Bacchus meet, they've got nothing but questions. Yeah. Wait, who are you? Where did you, are you my ex? Am I dying? Are you taking me to heaven on your boat? Wait, are you a sorceress? What are you? Why do they have all of these questions? Why are they barraging each other with these questions? Because they have felt it already. They're changed. They are part of this new compound. And they're now clawing to understand it. Ultimately what they realized and what I gave over to realizing is there's maybe no understanding. Yeah. Maybe all of these very important questions, maybe you're not going to get answers to them, but in the pursuit of trying to figure them out, you've gotten the answer. You've gotten the experience. So as opposed to sometimes it feels like with these characters, well, I'm in love. Now what, what am I going to do? Uh, you know, am I going to go tell off Scarpia and, and throw my life away because I'd rather be flipped to him and then I'm going to be sad because I'm going to miss my girlfriend and, but you know, I live for the revolution and now, you know, what am I going to do? All these questions that I try to, no, 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 no. All of a sudden it's all one thing. Oh my gosh. I'm this new thing. All of this has happened to me. I'm here. I'm arrived. I'm in love. Oh. <gasps> It's a realization instead of a decision. So through that feeling that comes from within, because he's realized he's part of this compound, now he has a certainty. Yeah. Now he can say to her, because of your suffering, I am now rich through that. I, like a god, I move about with a kind of joy that I've never had before. You know, I, nothing will ever happen to you like this again so long as we're in this place and she knows and says and feels the same kind of thing my suffering is at an end why you why well uh, uh, you now here's brian gilliam in an interview from february 9th 2021 brian welcome to words first i'm so happy to be speaking with you today i have concentrated many of my episodes on contemporary opera, so I'm, I'm actually thrilled to be adding to my repertoire speaking to you about opera that's now more than a century old, especially about Hugo von Hofmannsthal, who is often touted as one of the great librettists and has come up so many times when I speak to dramaturgs. They love to talk about Hofmannsthal and, and just his, his role uh, in the opera canon. So um, you're a Strauss scholar, and I think uh, Hofmannsthal can't really be approached without also talking about Strauss. <laughs> because it's true. Yeah. It's true. Um, and Strauss and Hoffmannsthal came seemingly from two different worlds and had these just incredibly different ways of approaching their art. Can you talk about the alchemy of their work together and how the idea of contrast fits into all the work that they make? We don't, you know, we as human beings don't like asymmetries and we don't like things that are paradoxes. And, but in fact, they were quite different. And um, Hoffmannsthal once said that what interested him above all in life was the harmony of contrast. And that's really true of Strauss as well. He loved contrasting. This was before he was an opera composer. Mm -hmm. uh, when he composed a serious tone poem, he would have to do a, a spoof on it thereafter. His Einheldenleben was his more serious study of heroism. Don Quixote, which came adjacent to that, was, was uh, a non-hero. Mm -hmm. uh, and you think of the Symphonia Domestica, which is all about the, the, the joys of domestic life, adjacent to an opera about, about uh, decadence and necrophilia, incest. Azalami, I'm talking about. Yeah, of obviously. course. <laughs> but I mean, so um, he needed contrasts. 
And um, so what brought them together was contrast. It sounds like a weird thing to say, but they both love contrast and um, irony. And uh, both had a different kind. He had a Viennese irony and Strauss had a Bavarian irony. What's the difference? Uh, what more, are you... Well, the Bavarian iron, irony is more down to earth. Uh-huh. A little few more jokes thrown in. Uh, the, the Viennese irony is the meaning of life. How do we get through a day? How do we get through life? And, and um, it's the way of the world kind of thinking. But it's worth saying that um, as long as we're just kind of saying things. Um, Strauss, all of Strauss's librettists, with one exception, were Austrian. Right. I read that. I hadn't thought about that at all until I read that. Stefan was Austrian. Josef Gregor was Austrian. So it's something that this German needed Uh that was not German. He needed this um, Austrian, Catholic, uh, mystical, the idea of a Welttheater was a word that Hofmannsthal used a lot. The idea of the world being a theater. Right. The whole city can be a theater. Mm-hmm. Salzburg can be a theater. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was with the Salzburg Festival. Sure. World as theater. The Catholic mass as theater. World as a huge mass. Uh, so this idea of world theater uh, was very much a, a part of all of these Austrian librettists, including Zweig and Gregor. And that really appealed to Strauss, this idea of this totality. Um, and, you know, at, at Salzburg, they do Jedermann every year, mm-hmm. which uses the very cityscape as the stage. Mm-hmm. You probably are interested in that sort of thing, this idea of world theater and how you... I don't know what that means to you as an opera director, how well, you bring the world on the stage. The, you know, what's interesting is I doing a little digression into my own personal uh, work, but I'm an opera director, but I came from dance, and my my actual degree is in site-specific work. So the the world as stage makes perfect sense to me because I, I used to turn it, everything I could into a stage. I, I did a piece on the on, on the, the subway in uh, in Chicago. So it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I like that concept very much of, of the fact that anything and everything is theater. I mean, it's, it's a very different way of looking at human action. Well, you know, it, it looks inevitable that we say they were so different, but they work so well together. But they were different. Mm. Let's be clear about that. And if you read their letters, there are a lot of arguments. Many There are a lot of uh, sharpness. There's a lot of sharpness of language and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of, uh, a lot of that. And um, so let's just lay out some of the fundamental differences. Yes. For Strauss, um, Strauss composed like, for him, composition was like breathing. It nourished him. He had to compose every day. And he did every day. He had a sketchbook with him. Uh-huh. He kept in his coat pocket. And um, he was very down to earth about it. Uh, it nourished him. It defined him. For Hofmannsthal, writing was a rarefied condition. The weather had to be right. He had to be in the right frame of mind. He had to be in the right mood. Uh, He had to trust his collaborator, which he didn't always trust. So here is Strauss who composed like clockwork. He He was conducting in the winter. In the summer, he needed to compose. He'd be in his villa up in the Alpine foothills and, um, there is where he composed during the summer. So he wanted to have his plan. He wanted to have his libretto text right there. Yeah. So he would say, well, when's it coming, Herr Hofmann? So I need your text. I need it now. And Hofmann said, you can't rush me. You can't rush me. So this was constantly <laughs> the, the the tension between the two. Uh, Hofmann saw needed to be in the right frame of mind. And uh, you could just push Strauss like a button and he'd start composing. Yeah, it seems like it um, should have been reversed since the words come first. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Strauss was, uh, so that's different. Now, it's been asked uh, many times, well, we, we one thinks of Boito and Da Ponte, yeah. also a great librettist. But I think we need to draw a distinction between Hofmannsthal and the other librettists. And that is Hofmannsthal the, the relation between Strauss and Hofmannsthal, as opposed to Mozart and Da Ponte or Verdi and Boito, mm-hmm. is the fact that um, Strauss and Hofmannsthal's relationship was more process. 
Okay. What I mean by that is that Holt Mansell was not a born librettist. Uh-huh. He started out with lyric poetry, and then he went to drama, and he really didn't have interest in opera uh-huh. at the beginning. Whereas Boito himself tried to compose opera and did compose opera. Da Ponte was immersed in opera from the very beginning. Right. So yes. Holt had to be kind of led along. So his first libretto wasn't even a libretto. It was a play that Strauss set to music. That's Electra, of course. Well, and 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 how much did he have any hand in it other than giving permission to be to He gave permission and then uh Strauss said, I need some more words at the end. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a this duet between Electra and Chrysothemis. Can you add some more words? I need to fill this out. I'm in this certain key. I'm using this theme. And he just I just need words. Can you just give me some words to fill this out? So there really was no real collaboration. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and what gets interesting yeah. is we think of Rosenkavalier as this great collaboration. Right. In fact, it's been asked, you know, what makes Rosenkavalier so popular? And if we look at all the popular moments of Rosenkavalier, these were moments that Strauss himself created and imposed on Hofmannsthal. Uh-huh. So the um, that beautiful duet between Hof, between Octavian and Sophie in A flat major, uh, uh, but after the presentation of the rose, my yeah. uh, my full um a beautiful A flat duet that was invented by Strauss. He said, "We need to fill. We need we need more lyricism here, so we need to add that." The the before the Leve scene, that trio between uh, the the Baron Ox and uh, the Marshal and, and Octavian, he said we need to, to we need to transition into the Leve scene. Let's do a trio there, and even the final trio, uh, Hofmannsthal wasn't too sure about. And he said well, you have to trust me on this one, Herr Hofmannsthal. I think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, so, a lot of what we love in in um, in the Rosenkavalier, a lot of what we love is was really Strauss's musical idea. Uh-huh. It's not really until Ariadne that they really began to start to trust each other right. as collaborative partners. I'm fascinated by Ariadne's place in the canon because it, it it seems like it's it's a logical progression if you think about like how Electra started and then what Rosenkavalier was and then where they kind of came. But it also feels like they 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 almost thought of it as a toss off piece. That ended up being something much more than they had anticipated. Is that, is that how you would yeah, categorize it? That's quite true. Uh, it was uh, an experiment. It was it was an experiment. Uh, it's hard to believe, but it's true that the original idea was to go from Rosenkavalier to what ended up Die Frau ohne Schatten. Right. Yeah. It was as early as 1911. I'm not kidding you. But Hofmannsthal said, you know. Rosenkavalier was basically a play, mm-hmm. which you set to music, mm-hmm. and you added certain lyrical moments, which I've already outlined. Yes. Um, but I don't really trust you enough. I need to be able to trust the composer. I need to be able to submit something to a composer that's more sketch-like. It's more like a scaffold, and you need to hang your music on it. I just have to trust it. So I said, let's just do a little tryout, and we're going to do this little piece it won't last more than a half an hour, and that <laughs> ended up uh, taking up more than a half an hour. And, of course, it took many years because uh-huh. the first version was done in 1912, and it was revised in 1916. Right. And um, so it took a long time. And some of their thorniest uh, correspondence involves trying to get this piece of work together. But uh, in one sketchbook, Strauss writes intermezzo on the top like this is just an intermezzo. This this is an interim piece. Right. Who would have thought? But he wanted an experiment with uh, giving the composer a scaffold. He needed it. If we, as, we, as we look back on it, he couldn't have could not have done Die Frau ohne Schatten without having gone through the uh, experimental um, tries of. Ariadne of Naxos. It's if if you think about the the greater work of Strauss and Hofmannsthal, the the two pieces that sort of uh, present themselves at least in the United States as as the most popular works of theirs are Rosenkavalier and Ariadne. Did did uh, did Ariadne achieve that type of popularity of presentation in their lifetime, or was it something that came later? 
Oh, that's complicated, but it's worth noting. First of all, the 1912 original version was not a success. Right. It was done in Stuttgart, and it was, um, as you know, the first half was the play, yep. the incidental music. The second half was the little divertissement called Ariadne auf Naxos, and that was uh, not a success. Well, it was a failure. <laughs> Let's call it what it is. Because the play, the play going audience wanted wanted the play and didn't want the opera. The opera lovers wanted the opera, not the play. Mm-hmm. So they just said, let's, we, we write operas, so let's make an opera out of it. So they made the play a prologue, mm-hmm. which in which they would explain all the main themes of the opera to follow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that was done in 1916. And that took a few years to uh, to, uh, to 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 gain success, but it was a success in their lifetime. Uh-huh. I want to actually talk about sort of Hoffmannsthal as a librettist. And and what I find really interesting is you just saying that he's a, a bit of a reluctant librettist, that that as much as we we associate Electra with him, of course, he he didn't write that as a libretto. And and that uh, Rosencavalier was sort of, uh, he eked into it until he got to Ariadne. We lost him too early to really know where he would have gone as a librettist, I think. But um, right. do you have thoughts about about his embracing of his role as a librettist? And is it something that he came to love as, as a writer? Or is it something that always felt a little bit reluctant on his part? Okay, that's a very good question, of course. Um, we can look at this two ways. Let's look at it on a purely, on a purely, in a purely human level. So he had just gotten married and uh, needed to make a living. Yes. <laughs> so you don't make much money being a lyric poet. You don't? <laughs> yeah, so he knew that if he was going to be able to support a wife and family in that period of time in which he lived, um, he was going to have to reach out to a broader audience. Which, So on that, on that just purely banal level, he knew he had to become a playwright. Mm, mm-hmm. Now we can take that argument and and look at it in an entirely different way in the context of the Chandos letter uh-huh. and all that. So actually, art and life work together pretty nice, mm-hmm. nicely. So if we just keep it on this banal level, if you're a playwright and your game is Actually, if you're writing in the German language, it's pretty much national recognition. Uh-huh. You're not going to write big hits in the United States or in England or in Italy or whatever. You're going to write plays for your mother tongue. Right. And in your motherland, be it Germany or Austria. However, if you wanted to gain world recognition as a writer of word, of the word, then become a librettist because your operas become not national plays, but international operas. Oh, wow. That's, that's an interesting thought. It's not something I really think about. Uh, that. Yeah, we can even now. go beyond that to the, the level of banality. I don't know how banal you want to get, but he got 25% of the royalties and Strauss got 75%. But he figured that getting even the measly 25% would be a lot more if his operas were being produced in Italy, France, oh, sure. England, the United States, uh, Poland, uh, you name the country, and they're being done. So he's actually getting far bigger play than he would with one of his one of his uh, spoken piece, pieces of spoken theater. Do you do you feel like? It- his libretto writing was entirely based on being a breadwinner or, or do you think there is some no. joy? Yeah. I say it worked out nicely for him. Okay. <laughs> but in fact, it is the logical extension of his worldview. Yeah. Because, okay. On the one hand, yeah, you become more successful, more financially stable by having a world audience, but he also as a poet craved a larger audience. As a young man, he was writing for an exclusive few. Yes. And he was feeling claustrophobic 
So he wanted to broaden out from word to gesture, which is more universal. So from poems to plays. And as we know, a libretto is even, as you know, because you're an opera director, you know that um, a libretto has even less, has even fewer words than a play. Right. Yeah. We, we've been talking about this so much in this podcast, actually, speaking to librettists. Yeah, so about, a librettist is really more of a a ranger of gesture yeah. and fewer words. And so if we're going into the Hoffman so said it this way one time. He said, if you look at uh, a Dickens novel and he puts his fingers up here to show the thickness, mm-hmm. a Dickens novel is that thick. Uh-huh. If you look at Macbeth and he makes his fingers go real thin, uh, it's just like that. Right. But there's the same amount of material in it. Yeah. But what's not in that that makes it that, or in, in Dickens, all the gestures are written in. Right. And in Macbeth, they're implied. And so he would say, I would argue that Macbeth goes from this to a libretto that's even this. Yes. Right? <laughs> so it's really dependent on the music and the gesture. So, yes, on the one hand, he was fill, fulfilling a, a life's plan, a physical life's plan, but he was also fulfilling a, a, an aesthetic life's plan. Right. So they, they happen to go hand in hand. So he, may, he was just sort of the natural progression for him that uh, he he naturally wanted to leave room for the gesture. So leaving room for the music as well just felt sort of like a natural move. That's fascinating. It's kind of interesting that uh, Hofmannsthal's first letter to Strauss was a, was a, a letter where he said, My, I've just written a ballet. Would you be interested in setting it? It was called The Triumph of Time. Uh-huh. And then Strauss said, I'm already working on, on, a, on a ballet right now. This is, I think, 1900. So yeah. they were both interested in gesture, uh-huh. even in 1900. Uh-huh. I might even go so far as it was called The Triumph of Time, but it is a ballet which involves time and space. Oh, wow. Time and space. Gesture is space, yeah. right? yeah. So it was a huge so part of what he was thinking about at that time. Yeah. So the gesture brought them together at the very beginning, even though they, he never did set a ballet. He did one ballet that was suggested by Hofmannsthal, and that was called the Joses Legende. Uh-huh. Hofmannsthal did not finish it, and a, a friend of Hofmannsthal's finished it. I see. Was that uh, because of his death, or was it uh, for other reasons? No, um, I think um, they were going to have Nijinsky choreograph it, uh-huh. and then, um, as you know, Nijinsky went mad, and uh, yes, so uh, they were going. Someone else was going to do it, uh-huh. and um, I think Hopmasa wanted the uh, the uh, fame of the name Nijinsky, sure. and uh, he backed out. That's yeah. just he backed out. It is what happens. Um, so we've talked about gesture a little bit. I I, I want to talk about something that you write. So I'm 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 a little over halfway through with uh, with rounding Wagner's mountain, which I'm loving. This the the book that you wrote. Um, but uh, and and I love these themes that you talk about. And I I I'd love for you to talk a little bit about just transformation and how the the theme of transformation is something that both of these men uh, were were interested in in putting into their pieces. That is, uh, this really gets to the essence of their relationship. Because first of all, Strauss was was obsessed with transformation mm-hmm. even before he met Hofmannsthal. Right. We think of death and transfiguration, that yes. early tone poem. Yes. So this interested him at the very beginning. And at the very end of his life, he writes the metamorphoses, right? The metamorphoses. So this idea of transformation and metamorphosis was a lifelong thing. So... When Hofmannsthal comes on, on board, he, this is just perfect. Right. What could be better than someone who is in this interest in the exact same theme? And actually, probably in a deeper, more po- obviously more poetic way. But um, so if we follow Hofmannsthal, we begin with the self. Mm-hmm. We are born as individuals, but we need to become transformed into social individuals. Mm-hmm. 
we go from the self to the social, mm-hmm. and then the spiritual Hofmanns, I believe we go then from the social to uh, the ultimate in the social, which always involves compromise, right. is uh, a relationship with another person. Mm-hmm. And in ninth, you know, in, at the turn of the century, that was assumed that that would be between a man and a woman, sure. married. Sure. And the ultimate in that relationship is the production of a child. Right. And this is all transformation. I mean, it's a, you've got sperm, eggs, fertility, fetus, birth, growth, constantly transformation. And it's parents, it's people you transform with a child. And um, so this is all part of this, every day we're different. And the children just bring that into higher profile because you see them growing a lot faster than you see your spouse growing. Right. You've already met as adults. Right. But so this um, is a very important theme. And Strauss believed in this theme as well. He was, he loved Goethe, who was a big, you know, believer in that we have to constantly reinvent ourselves. Right. Yeah. We must die and reinvent, die and reinvent. In many ways for Strauss, composition was a life, an opera project was a lifetime. And then at the end of writing the opera, he was dead. Hmm. And he had to write another, I mean, metaphorically. Yeah, then he course. had to start creation all over again and write and do another one, another opera. He loved that rhythm of producing an opera almost like a child. Right. Then it's gone, it's dead. You have to then start another project. It feels like it's just sort of the life of an artist, too. I mean, I'm just thinking as you're talking about this this idea, we're talking about gesture, transformation, transformation into sort of a relationship and the relationship into birth uh, of a child. But it, it also seems very much like uh, Hoffmannsthal and, and Strauss sort of lived this as e- with each other, if you look at their relationship, of course, not being a, a romantic relationship at all, but being a, a, a working relationship that they, that they almost embody sort of the themes that they that they're that that they themselves were interested in producing I, I find that really fascinating it's so cool and in fact uh the thing the the thing that relates to Strauss of course is that for him the joy was work right so he he enjoyed the process of composing writing creating I think more than anything else and that was the opposite of Hofmannsthal. <laughs> Hofmannsthal writing was pain. Uh-huh. Writing was difficult, was a source of anxiety, and Strauss thought it was a source of pure joy. Wow. But Hofmannsthal clearly thought that it was also, I mean, something that must be done. Let's- right. And if, to, to let me just bring it down to earth. For everyone who you know, you have a lot of musicians out there. Yes. A lot of people love music. How? What, what is it about Horowitz? He goes to he, a brilliant pianist, one of yes. the greatest of his time. Yes. Why would he fear getting in front of a piano for a recital? Why would he take ten years off, right. or how many years he took off, and went into hibernation? He couldn't face it. He couldn't face the very thing that was his best thing. Why was it Carlos Kleiber? Uh, was so red- reluctant to conduct when he was the best at it. Right. Why, you know, Hofmann was a brilliant writer. Why was he so afraid? Why did it cause him such anxiety? You should, you think it should bring him joy. Yeah. They go hand in hand though. The anxiety of production versus the actuality of. It's true. Yeah. So that's really a good point. I mean, you know, just thinking about so many performers I know who have intense stage fright, and it's the same thing. It's that. Uh, yeah, why should they have it? Right. Yeah. The uh, Marine who uh, accompanied Lady Gaga at the uh, at the um, inauguration. Yeah. He was her escort, and he was with her for fifteen minutes before she walked out. And he said she was so nervous. I had to calm her down. Oh. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, it's, it's interesting how those, they go hand in hand. It's almost as if it's not something we want to do, but something we have to do. It's true. I mean, I, I like, I write books and, Mm -hmm. but it's a painful experience. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you, you get it somehow. Surely there's, 
surely directing opera is not without frustration. Oh, and- no. I and, and I have to say, I get incredible stage fright before the first rehearsal. I, I get very nervous about it. I, I think... I think there's something about artists and 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 makers that uh, that lends itself to an, a constant imposter syndrome as well. <laughs> so I think we, you have to. Yeah, yeah. You're only as good as your next production. That's true, <laughs> for sure. Uh, production is very selfish. It doesn't care about your previous production, and it doesn't care about your next. Right. It only cares about your current production. That's right. I want to read this quote to you and I want you to just respond to it. And I think I sent it to you, but I loved it. It was a quote of Hoffmannsthal's that you, that you had put in your book. Um, what did it, uh, the real mystery of nature as creative force permanence is numbness and death. Whoever wants to live must surpass himself, must transform himself. He has to forget. And yet all human merit is linked with permanence, unforgetfulness and constancy. Can you talk a little bit about how that sort of embodies the philosophy of of, of much of Hoffman Saul's writing, or just what what he's saying inside of that quote? This uh, brings to mind one of his least known operas, mm. probably especially your audience, uh, his Egyptian Helen. Yes, <clears throat> and it's all about forgetting yet remembering. There is a humanity in remembering, but there's a pain in remembering. Yes. So on the on the level of the story, Helen has been has not been uh, true to her husband Menelaus, mm-hmm. and at the beginning of the opera, he's trying to kill her. And this woman named Itra, who is this who's. Um, Spouse is um, her husband's. Poseidon. She asks Poseidon to create a storm, which rocks the boat that Menelaus is on mm-hmm. with Helen, and they are thrown off the ship, mm-hmm. and they arrive arrive at this island where there's this palace, and that Itra, um, the wife of Poseidon, mm-hmm. greets them, and just to make a long story short, uh, she gives him a drug of lotus. Juice mm-hmm. and makes him forget hmm. that she has been unfaithful to him. Hmm. And we, the opera goes on. I'll just speed it up really fast. Great. But the opera goes on, and she's realizing more and more that she really loves him. She's sorry that she was not uh, true. And she knows that she can't really be a true human. Mm-hmm. Again, this is part of the transformation, how we are the self, the social being, and all that. She can't really be a true human, a true wife, and turns out she's a mother, unless he knows what she's done. Ah. So she gives him, a, at the end of the opera, she gives him a drug of remembrance. Knowing that he will remember, if he remembers her, and what she that. did, she he might well kill her as he had planned to do at the beginning of the opera. So she takes this risk. She takes a risk of, I, mean, I wrote this down here, actually. Uh, she takes, in order to be a human, she needs to take this risk. Yeah. And risking her humanity and risking her life. Right. And of course, we know Hofmann still, she will get a, she will transform into a higher level of of humanity by taking this risk. Right. It's the same risk that uh, the um, empress without a shadow takes. Right. She is told that if she does not have a shadow within so many days, her husband will turn into stone. So she has the moment to save her husband. And she says she will not take the shadow from the dyer's wife. And at that moment, she's waiting for her husband to turn into stone. She becomes a human. She becomes a full human. She casts a shadow. Her heart is no longer crystal, mm. but casts a shadow. And light, life is light and shadow. Right. So we have to, so remembering can be painful, but it also can be a wonderful thing. But it does have its dark side. It makes us who we are. 
I don't know if that, that helps with that, but no, um, that's really that's really fascinating, and I I love I love how he deals with both the dark and the light, and what that risk that sort of uh, and and that does seem sort of. Uh, Viennese that that somewhat nihilistic view of that that little leap of faith that you have to take in order to 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 that risk to if we look at it Ariane does doesn't she do the same she thing she does the same thing yes that's true she thinks that Bacchus is Hermes and she's yep. walking into death yeah that's right and instead turns into the night sky and if I might even I don't know if you know this work Die Liebe der Danai the original idea was Hofmannsthal right and I haven't gotten to that part in the book but uh, but I knew well, that she that's... chooses between she can choose between gold mm-hmm. and love mm-hmm. and with love comes poverty and she chooses the humanity she chooses love. love right it's uh, it's that's beautiful there's another point I wanted to get across Something also very important to Strauss and to Hofmannsthal is the metaphysics of marital love. Right. That's the third. That's exactly. That's the third theme. So uh, in most operas or plays or whatever, especially operas, they it either lands, ends in marriage or death. Mm-hmm. And um, but it usually ends with marriage if, it, if that's the if that's the way it's going to go. And what Strauss and Hofmannsthal said, what about if the opera begins with marriage and it's how they work it out that that's the opera? Oh, yeah. So Die Frau und Schatten is about two marriages that are not right. Uh-huh. In the case of uh, the emperor, he is a hunter, and the emperor is really no more than bounty. Yeah. And she's got to be more than that, and he realizes that he's got to step up. And she has to step up. And then we have the dyer and his wife. The dyer's wife doesn't even have a name. Yeah. She's living as the dyer's wife. Um, and um, she wants more than being a wife. She wants to be a person. She doesn't just want to have children. She wants to be a, a person in her own right. What a modern concept. <laughs> kind of like... Uh, Paulina was the composer's wife. Right. She used to be a singer. Yeah. And she held that over Strauss's head. So Hofmannsthal was correct in saying, Strauss to Strauss, remember your wife when you're writing this opera. You're writing the music. This Dyer's wife is the same as your wife. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. That's it. I love that. (laughs) I mean, it's there's sadness in that, but I I it's sadness. That's why we're in this business. Cause it is, it's, isn't it? It's not pure joy. No. And thank God. Everything that's, you know, joy is wonderful, but uh, don't you feel it so much more intensely when you've also felt the other side? It's just like the Empress. All yeah. she felt was bliss. Yeah. But she needs to, shadow is born of light. We have to know the two things. Yeah. I want to uh, end by asking you just about, uh, and I know what ifism is 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 its own thing, but... Do you feel that Hoffmannsthal and Strauss led each other in, di- in the wrong direction? Do you, what do you say to critics that feel that way? Uh, do you feel that they made themselves, they made each other better by, by finding this connection with each other? Or do you feel like um, they, they diminished each other? Uh, I know that's a big question. I think uh, it's quite, it's, it is the former rather than the latter. They made each other better. Mm-hmm. Um, part of this view that Hoffmannsthal drew Strauss astray is this idea that, well, Strauss ended up writing tonal music for the rest of his life. I see. And um, he, and given the libretti that Hofmannsthal wrote, these works did not lend themselves to that. Well, Strauss knew exactly what he wanted and what was, he was an opportunist. Yes. He knew what was good, what worked for him. And I think that in fact, Hofmannsthal brought further irony to his work psychological depth, and these themes of remembrance, of transformation, the the idea of marriage. This was something very important to Strauss even before he met Hofmann. So he wrote Symphonia Domestica. So this idea of the marital relationship was so important to him. In fact, I think that um, Hofmann intensified things that were latent in Strauss. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think it's the former and not the latter. 
think it was a great thing. They found each other and it was right. I think it was fabulous. We have a lot of operas to enjoy because of that relationship. Yes, we do. But uh, Brian Gilliam, thank you so much for this. This was just a terrific conversation. I'm really happy. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I want to thank Brian Gilliam, as well as Thaddeus Strasberger and Jonathan Burton, for being part of this conversation about Hoffmannsthal and his incredible contributions to opera. Next week, tune in for a conversation with singer and new librettist Roberta Gumbel as we discuss her work with Susan Kander, Driving While Black. Thank you for listening. I'm Katora Stickan. If you'd like to hear these interviews in their entirety, as well as bonus materials and outtakes, you can become a patron of my podcast by going to patreon.com backslash words first podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash words first podcast. All of my episodes from every season are available at wordsfirst.buzzsprout.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Words First is recorded deep inside my office closet in Knoxville, Tennessee. A special thanks to Matthew Doucet and Richard Stickan for their generous support, Early Doucet for a beautiful watercolored logo, Eileen Downey for the Mozart, and Randy Ravioli for the minimal barking. Until next time, take care of each other and keep telling stories. <laughs> <laughs>